There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Hey, this is Tyler Jones, and you're listening to The Element Podcast. What's happening, all my woods people? Man, it's a beautiful afternoon. What's the temperature right now? 80? 81. 81. It's supposed to be hotter than this tomorrow. Really? And today it was only supposed to get to like 76, so we might see 90s tomorrow. Really? I'm not sure if I'm ready. I'm not ready. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. It was uh, 30s uh, just two weeks ago. I know right? it. Not know. even two weeks. No, not even two About weeks. About eight days ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yep, we were uh, shooting frosty bearded gobblers. We were shooting frosty bearded gobblers. Mm. I think you just uh, you just gave them a bit of information that they are gonna salivate over. It's a tease, a little tease. <laughs> there. A, we got a cool video coming up. We've been working on it today. Actually, we've been mm-hmm. hard at it on element stuff. We haven't had a good work day like that in a while, man. Yeah. Um, we got to do quite a bit of stuff, including some uh, commentary to help the storyline for this turkey video and we are i'm excited about it yeah tyler gave me a little uh preview of i guess the rough cut is what you call it right Mm -hmm. Uh, of the turkey film and it's going to be pretty sick yeah i I like because we may we did a whole deer season of like very blog vlog style you know videos you Mm -hmm. know day by day stuff and a lot of that kind of stuff and it feels good to do some stuff with like some some good shots and some cinematography and whatnot, yeah, you know, yeah. and I think that's going to come over well. You know, I, I um, <clears throat> we, we were talking about this earlier, but I've been building up some some footage, uh, kind of archiving some footage that is, that's good or whatever, because, uh, you know, a videographer will tell you, like, you're going to have so much footage usually if you do it right, and there's going to be so much stuff that's not used, and especially in the deer hunting world, like, you may go out to make this awesome video and get all these great shots, but you don't have anything 
to you know any success at the end of it, then you just have a bunch of really great footage. And I've had that happen so many times. And so I last October when the leaves were changing and stuff, I got a bunch of uh, footage out at the Walmart property mm-hmm. and like good stuff. Like shot it, you know, super flat so I could color grade it and just red trees, these big old tupla gums that were out there and like. Uh, yellow stuff and then I got this I had this awesome video from one morning out there of uh, one of these um, squirrels just going up this tree and he was eating the little berries on the gum trees oh yeah and that gum was lit up red and he's just sitting there against this blue sky background it's it's such good footage and I you know I I didn't really see a place that I could use it because I didn't shoot a deer in East Texas last year you shot one in you know sweat Sweat time, yeah. early October. Yeah. And then the next one I shot was, like, January. <laughs> yeah. So there wasn't a good time for leaf-changing No, there footage. was no leaf-changing leaf changing footage that was going to go in there, and I never shot one at Walmart. So it was just, like, uh, it's just footage that's, that I have, you know, and hopefully I'll get to use it one day just to help tell a story or something like mm-hmm. that. But, man, um, yeah, I'm, I'm building up building up some of that stuff, and, and uh, I'm excited for this video, man. I just... I think that people are going to really enjoy it. Uh, luckily, Texas is on the front end of the of turkey season, so we may be able to release this during turkey while you're still hype about it, and, and while we're still hype about it. And oh, uh, I thought you meant me when you said you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm very hype about it. Uh, hopefully, we get to go another time, but we're not sure on that. But uh, we are going to for sure do some fishing. Uh, I haven't heard any crappie reports earlier, but it's got to be going going down right now, especially yeah. with this warm weather hitting this week. Oh, yeah, man. So. I think that uh, throughout the week it's going to build. And then, of course, on Thursday we're going to have a little bit of a cold front. It's probably going to set them back, and that's the one day I think I might be able to go in the evening. So, hmm. great. Cool. I love it. Um, <laughs> that's just the way it goes sometimes. Man, but. that looks like my, my free day, too, I think, is Thursday. So yeah. that's not good. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's <laughs> the way it happens sometimes, man. You just got to go when you can. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, I'm excited about doing that. You've uh, you've been doing some projects on your property lately. I have. I have. Did a little bit of stuff. I've put out some switchgrass and stuff, and that's part of the reason why we wanted to get uh, our guest on the phone today, mm-hmm. Mr. Jeff Sturgis of uh, Whitetail Habitat Solutions. Right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I got <laughs> the other day on a different <laughs> brand, I was talking about... Um, said brand and really got their name messed up real bad so now i'm pretty <laughs> self-conscious of that but yeah why tell Pet solutions with jeff sturgis we've had him on the show before and the dude is just brilliant when yeah. it comes to the concept of managing properties and uh i would think practical is a great way to describe yeah. jeff too yeah. he he uh like i think seven eighths of his food plots are done by hand like with a hand spreader and stuff like that so cool. like something that a lot of dudes can relate to right and um, we're going to talk a, to him specifically about small properties. So yeah. that's like 40 acres or less. Yeah, right? like micro properties. Yeah. We're, we're talking, you know, people, this is, the, this is an idea you came up with, Casey. And you, you told me, look, dude, there's a lot of people talking about small properties right now. And in the same breath saying 60, 80, 100 acres, he's like, I just bought 11 acres. What do, yeah. you, what do you call that? That's, yeah. I mean, that's like tiny. And so we, we thought, well, we'll do a micro you know micro properties episode with with jeff because we've had jeff on before and we know this dude not only not only is he like you said brilliant and knowledgeable about so many different things in the whitetail world he 
um, also is such a just like team player in the whole thing. When you ask him a vague question, Jeff's going to find like three or four <laughs> scenarios that like this this is what could be happening, and one of those is going to happen to be what your your property is like, you know, possibly. Yeah, so exactly. I love that because there's just so many guys out there that just won't answer questions because they're afraid to say something that's not going to work for somebody. And also maybe they don't really know. You yeah. Know and I mean? so many guys out there that are going to tell you, well, you can't hunt your own 11 acres. Well, I'm here to tell you that I bet what at least 30% of the deer in our area get killed on 11 acres or less. Would yeah. you just think something like oh, that? Yeah, there's a People l- are on five, six acres are shooting deer all over the place around here. You I know, mean, so that's just, that's the norm. And I think that that's something that people across the country can relate to. Because, A, if you want to buy a property, most people can't afford the 200-acre places, right? Mm-hmm. And if you can, that's great. I'm glad you can. Believe me, you can let me come hunt. But uh, uh, most people are looking at that like, you know, 10, 20, maybe 30 acres or whatever. They're a little piece of heaven. Put a house yeah. on it. Yeah. And you justify it. You yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. I'm, and, a, I'm with you on that. Man. And even if um, they're not the ones purchasing it, uh, truth be told, if you're in most areas of the country, parcels are just that size. Yeah. Right? If you're going to get permission on a place or, you know, Peepaw owns it or whatever, like, there's not a lot of those big ranches left around. Mm-mm. Especially nope. in, like, the eastern half of the country. Right. Yeah, and there's good deer hunting to be had on them, man. Yeah. I, I, there's just as many deer on 140-acre parcels as there is on four, what would that be? You know, like 10,000-acre parcels or 1,000-acre parcels. Yeah. yeah, you know, like the same amount of deer live there. Right, yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. They don't care who, where the property lines are. Exactly. And the, and in your case, you know, they've learned to live around houses and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And, and, you know, honestly, like a house is... Uh, Oftentimes, it's a uh, you know, it's security uh, visual seclusion from a road or something yeah, like that. Yeah, sure. I mean? It's so. also cover scene because those deer are used to smelling people. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That's the truth. Man. We'll see how much that that actually plays out because I think I think deer have a pretty good idea of when a human's fifty yards away as opposed to a hundred yards away. Oh yeah, you know, and they yep. like they can tell the difference in that, but. It might be that split second long enough that it takes to get the shot off or mm-hmm. whatever. So that's right, know. man. Well, so you done a little bit of switchgrass. Anything else yeah. out there? Right um, not a ton. I got a garden in, which is exciting. I yeah. put peppers in the other day, um, and kind of got that all planned out. I actually am going to have my one of my big projects is going to be keeping the deer out of the garden. So I got to figure that old <laughs> thing out with electric fences and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think next up, I my next project needs to be doing something about um one of my borders where uh, a neighbor's um residence kind of comes up pretty close to my property line and in fact i found a trail camera on my property just across the fence from those people <laughs> so I, I wasn't like super mad about it i was like oh look at here you know because i i mean truth be told if i was that guy i'd be wanting to see what's over there too you know mm-hmm. like it's not that big of a deal i just took the camera and kind of hung it on the fence right there so they'd take it back but um, I, I just, I know that there's a decent amount of activity here because it's like a, it's an everyday residence. It's not like a weekend thing or mm-hmm. whatever. So if I want to go back there and hunt, and it's in a really good spot, like there's going to be deer moving through there. And I found a couple beds around that general area, actually. Um, so I want to make sure that I don't go back there and hang one of these days and, you know, 8, 15 rolls around, you know, Joe Schmell comes out and drinks coffee on his back porch and and you know sneezes real loud or something and the deer go flying away because <laughs> right. they can see him and you know i want to 
my goal is to find a way to make more of a barrier right mm-hmm. there. And I'm probably going to ask Jeff about that and see what he thinks about Man, it because I know he's got some good ideas. I bet he does. Let's hop on the phone with him and let him do it. Sounds good. Now on the phone, we have Jeff Sturgis of Whitetail Habitat Solutions. Jeff, what's happening, man? You busy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> always busy. Uh, actually, I just just left the house. I have seven clients in eight days in Michigan, Ooh. so I'll be gone for gone for a little while. And uh, so it's always always a mess getting on the road, trying to pull everything together for a long time. So and there's been more than once my wife sent something next day here to the hotel. <laughs> yeah, I, I can understand that. So, so Michigan, yeah. uh, that's originally kind of home for you, isn't it? Yes, yeah. In fact, I grew up in Lower Michigan, uh, first 27, 28 years of my life there. Wow. And so, then uh, moved to the UP of Michigan. So I was basically 42 years in the in Michigan until I moved to Wisconsin. Wow. So was the Wisconsin move um, because of deer? Yeah, that was one of the reasons. Um, a lot of my client base was around here too, and it was a good opportunity to get away um, I stayed out in Coon Valley off and I hunted there, started hunting here in 2002. And so then I moved in 2012, but I got to know the community. It's a great community. Um, also great area, beautiful area. And it's kind of smack dab in the middle. It's, it's easier to get to Southern Michigan clients than it is. For example, if I was going to Southern Michigan, it'd be, uh, seven hours going the way I am right now to Southern Michigan where I used to live. And then it's, uh, I believe 11 or 12 going through the UP of Michigan. Gotcha. So everything was just further living up in the UP. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, you're kind of out there, man. We understand that in uh, Texas. Everything <laughs> everything we do is a long ways from where we're at. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Is that would, would that be South Texas or where? Well, where yeah, I mean, South Texas. South Texas is as far as deer hunting goes. It's uh, you got to have a lot of money to hunt down there. Uh, okay. usually or a really good connection and so uh basically once you start getting south of, of where we're at i mean really in state uh hunting prices are kind of outrageous here and um so yeah i mean just but as far as like even just travel at all you know like everything we do is north and west or east you know what i mean it's unless you want to oh, yeah. fly to mexico and cross the border which isn't all that fun most of the time <laughs> oh yeah yeah so anyway, we understand the uh, that travel game, man, for sure. So, um, so today we're kind of discussing micro properties, and the parameters that we've kind of set are under forty acres, uh, but maybe kind of have to an emphasis on those that are much smaller. And and um, you know, I informed you earlier, and KC just recently purchased a little over ten acres, and I know he's been itching to pick your brain. So. Uh, I'm going to kind of let him, you know, lead things, turn it over to him. And maybe I can interject when I feel so inspired, uh, or <laughs> sure. knowledgeable at all. So, uh, anyway, I'll, yeah. I'll kind of throw it over to KC now. Yeah. So Jeff, we've had you on the podcast before and it's always yeah. awesome getting to talk to you, man. But for the listener who, who doesn't really completely understand what it is that you do, can you just give us a quick overview of, of what it is you do? Yeah. Um, since 2005, I've worked on a little over 800 uh, whitetail parcels around the country, I think in about 26 states. And basically, I designed those par- parcels for uh, deer hunting at a high level. And along with that, of course, uh, comes the habitat. And so the habitat is designed with how you would hunt a mature buck uh, in mind. And so I look at it like you can't just have random improvements and, and you can imagine, especially, uh, you know, when you have a large parcel, you can have a lot of waste and you can get away with things that you cannot get on, can't get away with on a small parcel. And so my, my average client is, I like this year, I'm going to go to about 90 clients 
and about half of those are 60 acres or less. Uh, I'm purchasing a 24 and a half acre parcel here coming up. And then nice. the parcels that I hunt on are all 40 acres or less in cover. In fact, one is eight acres in cover. And then wow. throughout all that, you know, you gain a lot of experience. And, and this is something I loved before I got into it. I was hunting out of state, working on property, you know, in combination of all those for about 20 years before I got into the uh, business. And then uh, for that, I've written five books now. I have almost 300 uh, videos on YouTube and then about 600, a little over 600 whitetail articles online. And all those have to do with what I learn on each and every property because you do learn something on every property you go to. So I'm fortunate to keep doing this and to keep learning. It's kind of like the, the woods are my university. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome, man. <laughs> so, so you can learn learn something on every parcel. I, people ask me what I'll do when I retire, and this is exactly what I'm going to do. I might just go to fewer properties. Yeah. <laughs> so that'd, that'd be, I'd, I'd rather stay at home you know, more, but I have a hard time saying no, too. So we yeah. are. That's, Retirement's going to kind of be a blurred line for you, I would imagine, right? <laughs> it is. It is. I still, because I love to write. Uh, the YouTube videos are fun to make and create. Uh, and then I'm, maybe I'll go to 30. In my in my client seasons, about ten months long, from December through September, we're we're book solid, and so uh, I, I'd rather go. You know, maybe three a month would be better than uh, eleven or yeah. seven, eight, or whatever. So yeah, sure, yeah. Well, um, I know you've got this down to a science, and if this is a little bit basic, I'm sorry, but. Um, Oh, no, no, it never, it never is. <laughs> okay, good. So, we, yeah, we're building towards something, right? So uh, when you go yeah. to one of these properties, it, it, especially when you're you're going to assess, like, a new place, I'm sure there are, some like, some key habitat factors that you need to see or need to improve on for a whitetail. Uh, and uh, you probably got these bulleted out. So can you give me just the, the few major ones that you see that would be key factors in, in attracting and keeping whitetail on a property? Yes, yeah, that's... That's a great place. And so when I meet my clients in the morning, we'll, we'll discuss for about two hours. You know, for one thing, it's getting to know them, their resources, their goals, their neighbors, the land. But part of that, I'm starting to assess the balance of food. And so really food is what sets the daily movement of deer. If you don't have food, you don't have movement. For example, you can have a, a huge uh, federal forest location and you go four miles in and you think, man, I'm going to be in this remote area, going to find some huge bucks, and you find there's no deer because there's no food. And so it all boils back down to food. And what I find is, let's say you're 10 acres in a northern parcel and you're surrounded by federal land and you're at a one-mile dead-end road that only you can access, then you could put most of your property in food because you can set the table for a whitetail herd within a mile in any direction that will visit your land just about on a daily basis in the afternoon. So you can be that property just with 10 acres because there's nowhere else that has quality food now when you get into smaller ag areas suburban areas urban areas then you're looking more for daytime cover because you have the one spot where there's no humans it might not even be hunting pressure especially if you're in an urban area the hunting isn't necessarily the hard part it's finding land to get on and so once you have those whitetails attracted to that small high cover area even if it's just 10 acre parcel, then how do those bucks move or whitetails move when they get on the property? So then it's more of, you know, you, you have the deer there because of the cover. Now you can use food, scrape trails, and uh, possibly a large percentage of bedding area and a lot of diversity mixed in to move those deer when they come on the property. So I've had a client on eight acres where they're hunting 10 yards from a dirt road in wow. a spruce ticket, 
and there's a house over to the left at 60 yards and they're shooting three or four year old bucks because they're between a golf course and a huge subdivision with a little bit of ag land mixed in in uh, central Michigan in a high pressure area. But when those deer move through that area, they capture them on those trails where they want them to move and they put them, they offer a shot. You're not really invading on your property too much. And, and I think that'll relate to your house, even on the land where you just step out the door and you're back in some thick cover at the back of the yard shooting a, you know, shooting whatever age structure you can shoot that's the highest in that area. Yeah, that's uh, probably one of the most encouraging things that I've heard in a while. Because, you know, <laughs> you hear so much about, you know, sanctuary properties. And, and uh, you know, I've had people tell me, like, oh, man, if you put a, pl- a house in that place, you know, you're, you're going to be done. You know, you're not going to be able to see deer. And I'm like, man, there's houses all around. Why would this place be any exactly. different? Right? Those deer <laughs> yeah. are used to that kind of thing. They're, they're even used to, you know, tractors and horses and all this stuff. It, it, if anything, oh, sure. it might be pretty normal to them right and i also really yes. really appreciate that um you didn't just tell us that we need food cover water shelter and everything under the sun on our property for yeah. it to be a whitetail property right yeah, no nope, there's that balance yeah you hear you that so much out there so whenever you are taking a look at your property uh and you're looking at the surroundings do you think it's better to um kind of look at your property see what it can do well and go from there, or should you look at what's around you and try to mold your property into what that area needs? You know, that's a good question. And, I, and so there's some certain concepts that apply anywhere. Um, and so that's, those are some givens, but it's all about a balance of those concepts. And the balance have, have a lot to do with not only the landowner, his resources, your resources, uh, your amount of time that you have money to put into the land, but also a huge amount on what is going on around you. And and that could be that you're in a, a big wilderness setting, an ag setting, you have a high pressure setting, you're in an urban, suburban setting. And so there's a lot of factors to weigh in as far as what you should do on your land. So there's, there's no set of actual habitat improvements, for example, that should be completed on every single property that, that I visit. There's just so much, so many other things to take into, an, uh, take into account. And one of the big things, and I was thinking about this, is um, just in the last little intermission we had, but we had, when you go to any kind of whitetail property around the country, I believe that there's less than 10% of those properties that really hold the daylight attention of mature bucks on a daily basis throughout the season. And so that's actually a lot easier to do with a small parcel when you have, when you're surrounded by people, homes, other small parcels than it is to do in a wilderness section where bucks are used to a lot of space and they may bed, for example, three quarters of a mile on a, on a daily basis from their actual afternoon food source. Mm-hmm. So, so you're talking about possibly in a situation like that, trying to develop your property for bedding, I'm guessing? Yes, like in a small parcel setting where you're in a, a neighborhood setting where you have houses around you. Because the amount of daylight cover that a buck may have to call his own and where he feels reclusive enough is really in short supply. Uh huh. So, are you in a situation like that? We're in a wilderness section. He's got, you know, just an incredible amount of selection to choose from where he can bed anywhere to feel unmolested, undisturbed, um, where he does not have that high quality food source, though. Right. Um, In a situation like, so you're balancing more towards food in a big wilderness or wooded setting. And you're balancing more towards cover in an urban, suburban, uh, high pressure, high human uh, factor setting. Gotcha. So in in that in that setting, um, 
you know, creating bedding on a, on a micro property, is that something that can really limit your mobility and your hunting? You know, like you mentioned earlier, your, your guy that's got eight acres, he's hunting 10 yards off the road. Is that because if he goes any further in, he's going to end up, end up, you know, damaging, uh, or I guess, you know, affecting whitetails on his property? Yes, definitely. Um, so when I grew up hunting in the eighties, even the nineties, I had a lot of five to 10 acre parcels that I could hunt or the corner of a woodlot in Ackland where there was not a lot of cover, uh, in the thumb area of Michigan, it's real flat. Or I had a, uh, maybe a ditch line or a fence row that I could hunt. And that was about it. And so I learned pretty quickly if I went into a five acre parcel in the middle of the day, then those deer were gone. By the time I got into the edge of the woodlot, I'd walked a half mile across the open fields. Um, they were gone and they weren't coming back till maybe the following day, the next day after that, or even a week. And so I could clear out and ruin my hunting pretty quick. And so when it comes to small parcels, I've always taken that approach where you're making the, the parcel as thick as possible. You still want to be able to move around it. Depending on where there's food on one side or another, that means you might be able to hit one side as deer are leaving to, in the evening. And you might hit another side where deer are coming back to you in the morning. And, and you, you have the ability to sneak in in the morning because they might be out in someone's yard five blocks away um, when it's breaking dawn and they're just moving through the neighborhood getting back to that, that reclusive area. Gotcha, gotcha. So, um, you know, when you're, when you're designing a small property, a micro property like that to, to, uh, for, towards bedding, like you said, you're looking at putting more bedding or cover on your property. Um, is there a good way... Um, or some good factors that you would want to look at um, when you go to kind of mitigate the issue of uh, bumping deer that are bedded on your property during daytime? Yeah, a lot of times I'm putting the bedding towards one side or another, uh, towards, for, for example, on that 188-acre piece, and I can think back to some of the ones that were in the teens or 20, 25 um, the bulk of the bedding is taking place in one side. Uh, it might even be three quarters of the property, but it's in that one corner and you have access coming in. And, and so what I'm doing is even on a parcel that size, you still have ample room to go around the outside, say before daybreak and get into a stand position, wait for bucks to come back to you. And so really you're making a large percentage of the property that is bettable where a deer can get into, they feel safe. And then how you do that is based on the land and the habitat. And mm -hmm. so on some properties, we're hinge cutting. Other ones, you're removing or, or uh, you're completing a timber harvest. On others, you're dropping big, mature junk timber. And then you're hinge cutting to it if there's smaller timber available. Uh, if there's fields, I love switchgrass, diversity pockets. The bottom line is you're making a large percentage of that property uh, bettable in an, in an urban setting like that or suburban setting. And then you're using food, uh, scrape trails, mock scrapes um, are great to define how the deer actually move when they come on the property mm -hmm. or when they're moving through the property. Right, right. I just love how you give answers to vague questions because I feel like so many people, <laughs> you know, they go, well, it just depends on what's around you. And then you just don't get any information, you know, and I love that's one thing you yeah. do so well, man. You're good at that. Yeah, I try to picture it because there's a lot of parcels that um, there's always something going on around the land, whether it's a house, a school, um, you know, in situations like that or ag field even or a pasture. There's things that can be done on, on against those areas that you wouldn't do in another location. Right. Again, going back to nothing's the same anywhere. If you have a small property like this where you are... Uh you know, say, for instance, that little corner woodlot thing, it's five to ten acres, and, and the deer 
tend to bed on one side versus the other. Have you had success with trying to add cover and move that bedding area because that just that general area where the deer bed makes it so hard to access the property? Have you had success in like trying to change the cover types to move that bedding area to make it where they prefer to bed on the other side? Oh, definitely. And, and you know, sometimes they're bedding on a certain side of the woods because of wind, for example, you get a five-acre woodlot in the Midwest, you get an extreme amount of northwest, west. Those are the cold, harsh winds. So a lot of times you'll see bat, deer beds, they'll be bedding in the southeast corner of a woodlot, even if it's open timber, just because they're trying to get out of the wind. And so those deer in particular, if you make the northwest corner, and if you make that, let's say you had room for a, for switchgrass stripping, even if it's 30, 40 feet wide, so you can add some thermal protection. And then you have areas where you can actually put brush blockers or thick cover on the outside edge of that woods. And then you make hinge cuts or timber improvements or conifer plantings, um, a diversity of habitat towards that northwest corner. Well, then you can take those deer in the southeast and move them to the northwest corner because now that cover that was open and exposed to the northwest fields or those northwest winds now those areas are a eight out of 10 for bedding or a seven out of 10 as far as quality of bedding. And they drastically outcompete that bedding that's a one out of 10 over in the Southeast corner, but was purely bedding only because the winds were blowing into that Northwest corner. And now the deer can get out of wind on that extreme Southeast edge. So it really depends on what's going on in one side of the parcel versus the other. And, and, and so there's different ways to, to accomplish that, to move them over to that other side. Um, and so most situations you can move that, uh, you know, obviously, even if there's a house over on the other side, you could still work on creating that extreme cover up against that edge, making it so that that value of the cover is an appreciable amount of value different than where they were bedding previously. And if you match that in with, say, some apple tree plantings on a scrape trail, some small clover plots or a couple of harvest plots and uh, where you're trying to direct deer to move and it relates to that bedding, now you're not only displacing bedding in an area that it should be and will, will attract those deer over, but now you're relating that bedding to afternoon food source movements, scrape trail movements, mock scrapes, maybe even a water hole. So it's not just the bedding feature, it's what it relates to. And that goes back to, you know, what's going on around you. For example, if your neighbor has water and the deer that are bedded on your land are heading to that water every single afternoon to head to their major food source, which is some ag land, then maybe it wouldn't be a good idea to have water on your land or if you have a swamp on your land too. But, but again, there's a lot of, lot of ways to make sure that the deer not only change bedding, but to complement that change too, so that they can keep that, that change and maintain it all season long. Yeah, sure. And you touched on something there that's, that's going to really apply to me on my property. Um, I'll just give you a quick rundown on how things set up. So I'm one-third wooded and two-thirds open, but uh, some decent warm-season grass already on the place, and I plan on adding more stuff. But, you know, of course, most of the deer are on the backside, and it backs up to 400-plus acres of timber on the back. So I'm kind of in a great transition place. But on both sides, I have residences, okay? And one in particular is butted right up against my fence, and it's in kind of a, 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 I guess, kind of woodland type area. It's kind of uh, on the edge of a, of a ravine, and um, there's very little standing timber. There's a lot of um, saplings, and then on the actual fence row, there are really big trees. 
and okay. that cabin can look right down into everything going on to, on my place and if someone steps out their back door it's going to disrupt the deer so there's not really something in there that i can hinge cut uh right against the fence and that would be kind of you know my first inclination on what to do so i don't know where to go with that how do i add that you know that barrier that visual barrier you're talking about to where even though there's a there's a residence right there those deer can still use that freely yeah, that's a good question. You know, I really like, so in a situation like that, for one, if you can knock down those big mature trees parallel to your border, so it creates a fence mm-hmm. and you're walking on the backside or switchgrass, that area, native grasses, you're, you're lucky and you're in an area where you can use uh, various types of warm season grasses and they're going to stay up all winter long just because, you know, I don't think have that appreciable snowfall. No, not at all. Yeah. Uh, that flattens it down, knocks it down like we would have even in, you know, central illinois and on up mm-hmm. um you know north um so visual barriers one thing whether it's those giant trees you can knock down like a fence if you can add switchgrass but um if you can even put a privacy fence through there an actual wooden privacy fence that you could walk behind is i've had uh quite a few clients do that berms of course another thing but one of the things in a situation like that is when you have a cabin there you have a house that's an absolute and what's nice about that is then they're already adding human pressure um along that fence line so it becomes a great access point for yourself mm-hmm. where deer as long as they're hidden in their screen they can be 20 yards away and you could walk by them right on that line they're used to humans out in that yard or in that house and so you can actually walk by them really close as they're bedded down and if that's you know that type of scenario um and, and get by with a great approach uh back and forth no different than if you had someone with high hunting pressure and they had a blind right on your fence line the worst thing you can do is move into your property 50 yards to avoid it. and the best thing to do is move right along the fence row and give them a cup of coffee on the way into hunt <laughs> be, be, be neighborly yeah Stop sure. a cat. So, but, uh, yeah, but yeah well, anyways what have you been seeing right yeah that kind of thing exactly exactly <laughs> how's it going how's your opening day so far yeah sure yeah. and uh, uh, along that note um all properties are going to have neighbors, and it's something that you need to deal with and address. And I'm all about being neighborly, right? You know, I like friends, Definitely. especially if you're Definitely. going to live on the property. You need to know your neighbors and know them well. Um, but I'm sure there's good and bad ways of, of going about, you know, addressing the hunting side of, of being neighborly, right? So, in uh, your opinion, what, do you think, are you better off to just be completely honest with exactly what you have going on? over on your side or are you better off just letting people know kind of what they need to know and then you know this is my private property i'm kind of just doing my thing over here i think it depends on the situation um you know it's not just so if you see someone they're actively hunting uh-huh. and you know they're out there all the time you see them occasionally hunting then i love going over and just making friends yeah you know talk, talking to them um usually if you're face to face even if there's some kind of hard feelings preconceived because a lot of times someone will say oh those those there's certain people they're they're just bought land next to me they're going to be a hard hard party to deal with and if you just go over there and talk to them and say hey just want to let you know uh um this is what i'm doing i love whitetails wildlife and the worst thing you could do is we're passing on four points and i and three points you know three points on a side where we're passing all the young bucks. I suggest you do too. I, I like to approach it more like, Hey, this, these are the bucks we're seeing in the area. Um, this is the potential, uh, hoping you can tap into some of those too. And this is what we're doing on our land. And I think if you approach it like that, 
Um, it's a lot better than uh, trying to start with rules and regulations and co-ops and, and, and you know, making it so that they feel like they're uh, they either angers them or they feel inferior or whatever, or they feel guilty when they, sh- I mean, the worst thing, it's, it's so bad when a small, when a neighbor shoots a small buck and they actually feel guilty. Yeah, sure. And, and that, that, and that, and that's sometimes our fault. And that's, I can't stand that type of thing where I've done that with my own kids. You know, my son, Jake, he has a small buck come by and he looks at me and says, dad, can I shoot that? And here's, he's, uh, I think 13 years old at the time. It would have been his fourth buck. Mm-hmm. He had shot bigger ones and, uh, what a shame that he thought that he had to get clearance for me to shoot something when he's only 13. Yeah. So can I say it's the same thing with neighbors too. Yeah. Yeah, man. And, and it just, I'm the kind of guy, I just want everyone to be happy. And if shooting those young bucks yes. makes you happy, you know, then by all means, please do it because that just means you enjoy hunting and I do too. And, and so we're all just getting along. So do you, would you yeah, it, go ahead? Yeah. Well, I would think one thing to that. One thing that we started doing this because of our own, my uh, hunting partner, Carl, mm-hmm. his cousin Max was coming on the property. I had a, uh, my hunting buddy, Rich, was coming on the property to hunt Wisconsin different times throughout the last uh, 12 years, 10 years. And we looked at it at first, like, oh, we don't want him to shoot these small bucks, this yearling and two-year-olds. But then we really quickly realized that if they shot smaller bucks, they weren't shooting the three, four, five, and even six-year-old bucks that we had running around. Mm-hmm. And so... I kind of look at it like that, too. It's almost like I had a neighbor two years ago shoot a small buck. I'd watch the feed on some honeysuckle leaves for about a half hour, opening day, went over to his line, and an hour later, bang, and sure enough, that thing runs on the property. I'm hunting dies. I helped him drag it off. It was a little yearling, year and a half old four-point, and um, I looked at it like, well, he didn't shoot Whitey. He didn't shoot Jackson. He didn't shoot Stafford. He didn't shoot Russell. He didn't shoot one of our big ones. If you could tell, we named our box by quarterback yeah. names that year. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so, but but yeah. Anyways, um, you know, if they are shooting some of those small bucks, you know, is it really a bad thing in the end? Sure. I've seen people in areas where they have a huge age structure of bucks, and the, and they're complaining about their neighbor shooting a year and a half old buck. Mm-hmm. And that, I, you know, could be you could say it's almost a good thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I'm not a biologist, right? So I don't I don't try to dive too far off into this this stuff because I don't want to speak somewhere that I'm not well educated on. But when you start looking yeah. at um, the dispersal rates of one and two year old bucks, uh, at the end of the day, if you shoot one, you're not even shooting the deer that's going to be your three and four year olds. A lot of times, especially on these small properties, you know. And I feel, yes, I, feel, I feel like that's kind of something, it's one of those things where like the big property management is kind of bled down into what we think is just a truth across the board of whitetail. Oh man, you, you, you touch on a subject that could be a, a whole two podcasts in itself, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but what the problem is with a lot of the management in the entire country is that a lot of it's based on large science mm-hmm. and large parcel science, public land. Uh, large uh, southeast or southwest holdings, almost none of the the science and none of the research. And I've talked to John Azoga about this. He's a was a leading uh, whitetail research biologist. He was a deer and deer hunting research editor for many years. Um, but he said there's just simply not enough money to study deer on a 40 to 100 to 300 acre basis across a huge huge neighborhood of deer. There's so many factors and conditions that would have to be taken into account for peer review to pass peer review study that it makes it almost impossible to do. And so a lot of that research that relates to large parcel buck movement, open woods movement where they don't have a lot of food, 
Um, they're not in ag areas. They're not in suburban areas. They're not in urban areas. They're not in small parcel northern setting areas where everyone has a cabin on a 40 and a 20 acre parcel. Then a lot of that science that gets applied to those areas are actually, in some cases, can be um, a negative, and they could be uh, um, you know, really something that can be misleading as it relates to a small parcel. So you can throw all the science almost almost out the window um, when it comes to managing small parcels. You know, of course, you, when it comes down to the science of managing woodlots or trees or the bio, biological aspects. Um, a lot of those are, of course, the same, but um, even yearling dispersal rates, you know, yearlings, they say if the mother's around, he's going to disperse 90% of the time. If she's not around, he'll stay 30% of the time or 70% of the time, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. There's per- percentages like that that I think hold true just because that goes back to the biological needs of the, the herd um, anywhere that, that can be applied. But, but yeah, you know, if you're managing your small parcel that a mature buck has a three mile home range and you're considering that for his daytime movement, then you're not tapping into the potential of your parcel. Yeah. Even at, a t- even at 10 acres. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, <laughs> so we've talked about the hunter, the, uh, the hunter neighbors, right? Would you rather have, yes. would you rather have a, a smart hunter as a neighbor or someone who is a, uh, leaning towards the anti side, the don't shoot my deer kind of person. Which is the better neighbor on a small parcel? <laughs> That's pretty funny. You know, the uh, I would say and it's and it depends on how you look at it. So if you have a private land neighbor that's doing the same thing you are, uh-huh. then I look at it like you can accomplish three times what you would you know, instead of just twice. So let's say they're working on almost like their own herd, not their own, of course, but they're working on a herd. You're working on a herd. It's almost like you can separate those two, even on adjoining 10 acre parcels. And you're kind of looking at it as he's putting his resources there. You're putting your resources there. Yeah. And that's, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Now, now the next level down is you just have someone smart that's hunting next to you and they're not really working on improving the herd but they are through trigger selection and they're making good choices and they hunt very smart. They can tap into your property and your efforts then. Yeah. Whereas if you have an anti hunter or someone who's, you know, the weekend Bubba hunter, which is a good thing where that's probably the, I mean, we're a lot of times these podcast things we're doing, it's more, these are more slated towards uh, at least the Bubba plus hunter <laughs> where you have, <laughs> You know, we're, 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 you know, it might not be that you're just throwing seed on the soil to make a food plot. You actually have an ATV, an ATV spreader. And, and I'm using that from a friend gave me these, this, uh, those labels and whether that's good or bad, it's kind of like, um, you know, the average hunter that just goes out, doesn't care about wind, maybe drives the ATV to the edge of the parcel parks. It makes a lot of noise getting in, um, that person. And then an anti-hunter, I think are sometimes more the neighbor I'd rather have because they have the least effect on my herd goals mm-hmm. and my hunting success and the quality of the herd overall. As far as that smart hunter that gets in next to you that doesn't do a lot to actually improve his portion of the woods, um, but he's in nothing that there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. that's what's great about small 20 acre neighborhood public land chunks that mm-hmm. are hidden. And, and you can get in behind some. I used to hunt that way when I was 17, 18 and 16, where we would hunt behind a neighborhood where no one else could get there other than walking in a mile and a half on the other side from the other side. Yeah. And so that was awesome because we could get into areas. That, but, you know, going back to, I've had um, in, in 
uh, Wisconsin. We had our, our large lease. Uh, the neighbor that I lease now, he has 52 acres. It was up for lease. He didn't realize how much money he could get for it. I found a friend in Michigan. He came over, leased it, and they shot three really high-quality bucks. Uh, one was called Pushing 170. Ooh. Within within two years, they shot those bucks. Where wow. the, the previous neighbors were the ones that you know they drove their ATV in. They shot one nice buck in 17 years that the landowner knew of, and they were very invasive. They hunted with a lot of guys on 52 acres, 30 acres of cover. And here these guys pop in that were smart hunters over from Michigan, and they, they hunted uh, two years and shot three bucks. And, I mean, and that was the kind of neighbor I was kind of like, but by the end of that second year, my lease partner, Carl, was saying, you know, how come you didn't lease, how come we didn't lease that parcel? You know, why did you, why did you call your friends and let them? I'm like, I don't know. I just figured we, because I'm the one that takes care of our, our parcel was 165 acres. I was the one that managed everything. I just looked at like a cool to have some friends in the neighborhood. Yeah. But yeah, they, but they, they were, so yeah, there's, if you break it down into each, you know, anti hunters, um, the weekend bubba hunter, the weekend hunter that can only get out then and just is going out for an enjoyable time. Um, not necessarily caring on what they shoot, just having a fun time, which is awesome. Um, those those kind of neighbors to me impact the hunt less. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're almost kind of like the neighbor. So when you get into those subdivision settings, a lot of times that's awesome because you have people that are really literally on the fence of, you know, hunting or not, or uh, shooting box or not, whatever. You yeah. Know, um, even the whole game of owning a gun. Yeah, let sure. Alone hunting. And uh, a lot of times <laughs> you run into, yeah, I don't want you to shoot Bambi, but, uh, man, those suckers get into my azaleas every night, and I hate them. You know, like the, people exactly, really start yeah. to kind of understand the necessity of herd management. Yeah, almost like they wouldn't mind you shooting those deer, just they don't want to hear about it or see it. Yeah. So that's where, you know, uh, my my buddy, close friend, uh, last year, I don't know how many neighbors' yards he went five and acre, ten, five and ten acre parcels last year. He ended up recovering his buck, but he had to go through a lot of neighbors' yards to get it. Oh wow! And he went, he went and uh, sought permission, and but um, you know when he found it, the arrow was sticking out. It just it was one of those. He actually made a good shot, but they can still travel two hundred and fifty yards. Yeah, um, with, with an arrow when it, you know in the lungs, and and they dies nine seconds later, and it covered a lot of ground and. He had to go through a few, na- few neighbors' yards to get it. Yeah, wow. So, but yeah, that's uh, you know, I that's why I th- it's it is complex when you look at that, and that's why you can't say, and that's where you know it's kind of like those neighbors with the ornamental shrubs. If you're by a golf course, um, some of those types of areas that can just offer an incredible amount of food every single night to the deer herd. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So then you're really looking at I want all the cover on my land, and again, it goes back to. There's not a lot of areas in, in those kind of settings where you can give uh, a mature buck an unmolested five acres of cover during this daylight uh, area. And that's why a lot of times I find you can pack quite a few deer in that in that same little five to ten acres uh, because you're only managing their daylight movements. They might move three miles at night, but they're only moving 150 yards during the day. Yeah, yeah. And it, going, going back to that whole, you know, ignore what you know about science about deer, uh, there's a little... Um, uh, Lakeshore community near where we live that you know they've got hundreds of resident does right and I'm pretty sure those does make a living between bird feeders and ornamental shrubs you know that's what they eat oh, definitely. <laughs> on a daily basis you know and, and yeah, all winter yeah and that's what people don't understand is that like those deer aren't you know they're not visiting food plots they're not going out to ag right it's just a different right. thing completely so yeah and there's nothing wrong with that science either it's yeah. not like it's just that that's 
kind of a lot of times all they can go by. So they're studying deer over thousands of acres of open public land in Pennsylvania with radio collars and finding out their home ranges, how they relate to each other, where their home ranges are at. And someone will look at that and say, wow, this is great science. And it is if it relates to that exact specific area. But when you throw the complexities of high quality food uh, uh, roller coasters on different people's land, land that have and have not water, short compacted movement, higher deer densities, higher mature buck numbers where they're not infringing on a neighborly buck that much. They're not crossing lines. You don't get a lot of overlap. So there's so many complexities when you get into those small parcels that a lot of that science is irrelevant. Yeah, sure. Uh, even even herd census, when you're taking a census in August, September, that's great on giant open parcels where their deer herd does not change because it might shift from one side of the land to the other, but it's primarily you're, you're holding a captive herd that stays there all year. When you're comparing that to a 40 to a 400 acre parcel, then your deer herd really should be managed in October, November, because they probably, because of the resources, are on someone else's plan or on someone else's land during the summertime. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, along that herd management idea, um, what's realistic for, for somebody on a small parcel? Do you think that someone can truly have target bucks and follow them season to season? Or if you wanted to be more satisfied with your hunting, would you be better off just saying, you know, I want to shoot something that makes me happy in the four-and-a-half-year-old range, and the first one comes in just just to have fun with it? Well, that's a good question because if you have those older bucks in the area, mm-hmm. then um, I find on a 30-acre parcel, 40-acre parcel of habitat, and this is in a, an area where, let's say, there's an average of 80 to 100-acre parcels and maybe 50-50 ag land. So we're talking a high representation of a lot of hunters across country um, that you should be able to shoot. Uh, if you manage your property right in your hunt, you should be able to manage and shoot 80% of those target box, 70% of those target box over a 10-year period. A very unfair advantage because wow. if, if no one else is hunting that small parcel or their parcel is the same way you are, yeah. then you can. So for one, if you're only hunting uh, when the weather conditions are good in the in the good days, mm-hmm. then that sets you apart from 80, 90 percent of everyone else. If you're hunting with uh, making sure that your wind is blowing off of your hunting land or into areas where there's no deer and you're setting that up by stand location far in advance, then that sets you apart. If you're defining a daily movement, if you're defining a, a deer travel, a deer uh, habitat improvement line, where when those bucks come into your land, they actually follow the rules and follow the script and they stay on your line you know, running parallel to your borders, you're, you end up doing a lot of things. And every step that you do um, is adding to your potential success compared to your neighbors around you. So so when you do those things, then you should shoot a higher percentage of those mature bucks in the area compared to everyone else. Now, at the same time, it really depends on, you know, how much fun you want to have, too. So. Yeah. If you're, if you're a seasoned hunter and you have that high experience level of shooting those mature bucks and you set your property up that way, then your expectations should be a lot higher than someone else. And so, on the other hand, I've gone to clients that they're waiting to shoot a four-year-old buck and they've never even had a three-year-old on, on film. Mm-hmm. And so, for, for nine years, they haven't shot a buck. And so, what happens if they end up shooting or having that four-year-old on their property or five-year-old? Their, their failure rate, we all have a failure rate when it comes to shooting bucks. Mm-hmm. So we're, none of us is going to be 100% perfect on making that shot, drawing back the bow, everything else. And so 
if you haven't practiced shooting deer in bucks in general, a younger age class, then when that older one comes down, your comes in, your failure rate is really high. And so I'm all about, you kind of look at, you know, where you're at as a hunter, um, where your herd's at, not, not setting expectations that are either too high for yourself or for the land and then going out and shoot something. Yeah. And, and having fun. Yeah. You know, really focusing. I want to, you know, I, I think hunters, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a bad thing to pass deer, um, you know, not shoot something, but if you enjoy hunting, you enjoy venison, then by all means, set your sights realistic for yourself, your experience level and your land in the area and then go out and have a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. And, and for me, um, you know, this is, this is, I'm going to say our first property because, um, I'm a family man. I have a wife, right. And and she's just as involved in this purchase as I am. Uh, you know, it's both, it's a financial commitment for both of us. Right. So how fair would it be for me to tell her, Hey, we're not going to be able to actually enjoy this property. You know, it's just kind of, it's really, you know, you can have the front up here to do whatever in the yard or or what have you, you know, but, but really the back, (laughs) you are only going to go back there six times a year when the wind's right, you know? So See that ladder stand at the oak at the back of the yard? That's yours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not going to work. Yeah, my, my wife, I hunted 15 times last year, not counting out of state. She hunted uh, 45 times, oh, you know, wow. around the neighborhood near the house. And so part of that was inexperience and everything. But, you know, I just wanted her to shoot a buck. So, yeah, when we're, we're buying that 25-acre piece this year, that's uh, just as much her land as my land for sure. And, and, and I want her to have fun or she's not going to be hunting very long. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, and truth be told, my wife, uh, she likes to go with me, and she shot a few things, but she doesn't have the passion for it than I do. But she really enjoys, you know, watching wildlife, and she she really likes how I teach her stuff about the land, right? And and kind of my yes. my vision for for this property has always been um, find a way to use this, a for my enjoyment and for her enjoyment, but also share this and educate people on on land management and and just wildlife in general right i I love the idea of being able to go out and take you know a a group of middle schoolers or something and and show them like hey you know this is a warm season grass it doesn't come up until and you know when the temperature hits such and such in june or whatever you know and and talk about flowers and bees and, and acorns and how there's red oaks and white oaks and all this and i feel like you just you can't have your cake and eat it too when it comes to uh, being able to do that and just and kill big giant bucks and only hunt a place you know first time in like you hear about so much on on, on um, media outlets right there's there's a well, level yeah that's that's so true I one of those things too is that if you have a there's a couple things if you have a quality property it's hard to to hit that center bullseye of whitetails and not affect every other piece of wildlife around in a good way yeah now, sure say for example we were out uh, shooting videos we shot seven videos yesterday morning Dylan and I. We're out on the property and a hen and a rooster pheasant take off right at the ATV to the point it made us both jump. It was that close. So <laughs> they jumped out of some a pocket of switchgrass. We only have pockets of switchgrass out there. If we had all pure switchgrass, those pheasants would only be on those outer edges. Because we have pockets, then we have an incredible amount of linear length out in that field that's not only affecting pheasant populations uh, positively because they're going to be on those edges, but it affects rabbit populations. Now we have rabbits coming out in those fields for the first time that we've ever seen. We find pellets out in the switchgrass. We have pheasants actually out there now in an area where there's hardly any pheasants. And then we have deer that relate to all those lines of movement. We follow that their lines, like when they're beat down trails right now where you can see because it's, you know, April, Mm -hmm. they're moving right along that pheasant. And so, you know, that's all awesome. What I find is you're creating 
whitetail property, you're creating edge, you're creating diversity. And then for that, you're creating wildlife. And when it comes to your, your wife and hunting, I found that over the last couple of years, to me, it, is, it might sound crazy to some of your listeners, but my wife is my absolute favorite hunting buddy that I've ever had. That's by cool. far. Yeah. Not even close. <laughs> so to see her excitement and her happiness and to see her, uh, you know, notice things out in the woods that she's never noticed before, whether it's uh, just a leaf. She, one time when I was sitting with her, she kicked me out of the stand by the eighth sit last year. <laughs> so <laughs> the rest was all by herself. But she'd tell me, you know, it was so cool. I watched this oak leaf. And you ever you see an oak leaf in the wind will blow it, and you ever see it where it's just like twisting back and forth, almost like dancing by yeah, itself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a little flutter. She noticed something like that. And so she'd, she'd tell me these things. Uh, of course, the sun setting, a bird in a tree. I saw this really cool red bird with yellow. So what was it? And we look, you know, we look back at it and we can look it up. And but yeah, it's stuff like that. And, um, and so when you're hitting the bullseye and you're incorporating your family, kids into it, it can be so much fun because it's, there's so many other uh, aspects of wildlife that are going to be improved on a whitetail parcel if you're really doing it right yeah what was that bird i'm a i'm a i'm a birder man i gotta know the red with yellow um they was a and i don't know if it's yellow but it was a rose breasted rose oh man i love them yeah they start coming in aren't those beautiful yes and uh i really got into the birding thing whenever i lived on the texas coast because we'd have that fallout from where they fly over from the yucatan and uh oh, yeah. yeah so you know they'd come in waves and those rose-breasted gross beaks are just they're man they're cool cool birds I, yeah yeah I we don't stuff. see them hardly ever yeah so yeah those kind of things they really stick out but uh but yeah so for whitetail parcels when you have a small parcel um like i'm thinking that field you have you, you create uh warm season grasses mixed with diversity pockets of non-grass so whether it's shrubs hardwood regeneration hardwood planting shrub plantings then you're creating food with that broadleaf but you're also creating nesting opportunity and edge um, opportunity for whatever kind of wildlife species that you're targeting in that area. Um, you know, up here, of course, the pheasants and the rabbits are big, um, even grouse up north further, mm-hmm. but they all require a lot of diversity. Yeah. And that all that diversity matches whitetail habitat improvements really well. Yeah, yeah, cool. So, so um, tell me a little bit about this property that you're purchasing, because I think it's cool that, that uh, you're, you know, what you do for a living and how much you know about property management you're willing to commit to a small property. So what did you see on this property that made you say, you know what, this this is going to be a good one? Uh, to be honest, you know, committing to a small parcel, that's a whole lot easier financially. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's not just that I'm saying, now, now in truth, though, um, uh, it, it just real quick, I'd rather have three 40-acre parcels around my house than one 120-acre parcel because mm-hmm. now I'm tapping into three uh, buck herds in three areas. And again, I can go back to, I feel that I can shoot an unfair percentage and target an unfair percentage of those target bucks every single year over a, uh, you know, a long period of time. Yeah. So three, three small parcels to me is better than one large piece where I'm only tapping into the same bucker. Yeah. But that being said, the 24 and a half, it kind of just came into my lap for one. I think I'm getting a good price. It's up in Buffalo County. Mm-hmm. Um, and Buffalo County is the number one County in the country for Boone and Crockett Pope and Young yes. entries. Yes. So I'm sure many listeners perked up when you yeah. said that. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And then along with that, it's got a bottom, it's, it's basically a bench system with a few ridge points in it between the bottoms, um, outside of Elma, Wisconsin. And then it's, um, uh, between the, the bluff country, 
and so it's kind of in the between that location, the bottoms and the bluffs, you know, it's, let's say over a mile and a half to two mile area. And it has a lot of deer. It's right next to a neighborhood. Um, I was able to work out a good easement where I can drive right to it. There's electricity. There's actually a little building spot for a cabin. But then it's also, I have a five foot easement where I can walk in through the, the seller's yard just for a walking easement. So I, that one's like 150 yards away from the other easement. Oh, so great. A couple ways to get in. It's uh, hardwoods on the finger ridges and, and then it's junk timber in the bottom. So with that junk timber under the managed forest plan, I can actually cut that, hinge cut a lot of that stuff, make it thicker in there, get more regeneration. And then also I can put about two and a half acres of food plots in there. I probably only put about two acres off in either corner. I can access around those locations. And then also because it's dry, then I can add probably two water holes in there. So I can have maybe six or seven tree stands and blinds on that small parcel, two areas for access. And then the cool thing for me is we'll, we'll uh, be able to video it, uh, all the bulldozing. We'll talk about how to bulldoze food plots, how to make them look clean and pretty. We'll talk about uh, planting new food plots in, water holes. And so basically that's what I do for a living. We'll be able to video it the entire, uh, the entire off season, hunt it. Um, it's right by where my stepson is going to school near, uh, uh, Winona University over in Minnesota mm-hmm. and so he's going to be able to hit it and hunt it with his friends they're all they all have video cameras they love doing all that stuff anyway so it's just it's a good fit for our family um and to be honest I'll probably uh, put it up for sale at the end of the season oh wow and so it's kind of one of those you know again going back to I already have uh two leases I might keep I have a third lease I might keep this year again and then I'd still keep leases, but I really like having those small parcels, maybe even one in Minnesota. But that's kind of the end game, you know, years down the road is to have multiple small parcels in a couple of states. I, I live, I'm only 25 minutes from Minnesota. So yeah, um, kind of a kind of an end, you know, stepping stone. But even then, I'm still going to keep focusing on those small parcels. I, you know, it's what I do. It's in my wheelhouse. But I think, again, I really have experienced over and over again that you can tap into a high percentage of the, that area buck herd. And if you have parcels... You know, if you have one 80-acre parcel, it's still the same buck herd for the most part. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of times guys get in this mindset of I'm going to buy 10 acres and flip it, and then I'll have enough money to buy 20 acres, and I can flip that. And then people just think you need to stair-step. But um, yeah. I think that, I mean, what you're saying about having two or three smaller places makes so much more sense, you know, because you can go in there and just extract those mature bucks that you're looking for. And you can also – probably find a way to hunt more varied terrain you know and you might have a parcel over here that's you know ags ag country with fence fence lines and then over here you've got you know a big woods place and it's just kind of can add to your general hunter enjoyment as well yeah and even i look at uh some because they're covered up in alfalfa and beans and rotations all the way around them then they're more you can hunt those more of an early season as an early season property because they're using your property as early season cover and and then if you offer food plots um, along with that, then you can create that early season and then fall bonanza, you know, for the whole from all the way from August to January. And then you have other, those other parcels that might be difficult terrain, and it's more of a rut cruising area where you're actually adding less food plot and more in terms of uh, def- uh, travel definition or cruising tra- definition as far as in terms of water holes, box scrapes, travel corridors, and bedding areas. So yeah. I like having that blend of it all. I like doing it all. And, and again, so I look at a parcel, I'm looking more at um, what's going on in the neighbors, what area is it in, uh, how is my access onto that parcel? Not necessarily that it has to have, 
I don't like hardwoods because it, it makes it a lot harder to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and then you lack diversity right off the bat. So at least on this parcel I'm getting, it has two types of timber where you have the low junk in the, in the bottom uh, flat area. And then you have the high ridge with the, with the big oaks. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll add the food plots and diversity. But uh, you really want to have, and then water. Because mm-hmm. it's a dry parcel, then I can actually add water to it where yeah. I need it to be right at a bow stand location. So if I didn't have, if there's already water there, you're kind of socked into a stand location by that water or none at all. Yeah. Um, it's a bowl, you know, depending on where it's at. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So for a lot of guys um, who are purchasing small properties, I feel like small properties kind of go hand in hand with first properties. And that's kind of where, where I'm at. Oh, that's so you know, true. You know, yeah. uh, and, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's just like what you were saying. It's a, it's a less of a financial commitment. A lot of times it's something what people can afford, you know? Um, so with that thought in mind, what do you think some of the biggest mistakes you see people making whenever they, they do purchase that first property, probably a small property? What's, what do they do wrong right off the bat? Um, and it's interesting. I just have, I, I have a couple YouTube videos out. One's from a couple of years ago. It's like top 20, uh, uh, tail habitat needs mm-hmm. for purchase for your next land purchase or lease or new land, new hunting land. This year I did top five. Mm-hmm. What I see, um, one, I'll see hunters that are real excited by a property because it has a big pond on it, thinking that's going to be a good thing for whitetails. Uh-huh. And if it's in, and it's not that a, a pond is a bad thing if you enjoy fishing or something else, but a, a good sized pond takes out habitat. And you can imagine the bigger that pond is, the further a mature buck's going to feel safe bedding against it if there's activity at that pond, human yeah. activity. Yeah. And so uh, I'd rather have a small water container or a small water hole that's 20 feet in diameter where I can actually pinpoint exactly where I need it for a whitetail stand. So water on the property is not necessarily a necessity or a good thing, depending on where it's at already or the size of it. Mm-hmm. And, and it, depending on, you know, and again, we're going back to a lot of this is it's a family thing and there might be other recreational opportunities. The family wants to get Hardwoods is, is probably the, one of the big ones that people really like to have this big standing timber on their property. And those are some of the hardest properties to manage. Now it's easy because you can just say, well, yeah, this 40, I've sat on one 160 acre parcel in Michigan, central Michigan. We're on a small knoll in the middle. You can see about 155 acres in the winter time. We snowshoed into it. It was all hardwoods and you could see almost the entire 160 acres, just from one knoll in the middle. Mm-hmm. And the, the amount of dirt work they have and dozer work and plantings that they have is in the tens of thousands to make that a good whitetail parcel because they do not have diversity. Wow. So, so buying a large chunk of hardwoods as a general rule and this rule is hardly ever broken unless you get into properties that are underwater, extremely rocky, um, something that you can't work with because of that, uh, steep terrain, whatever it might be. But in general, the lower the value of the timber, the higher the value for wildlife in general, let alone whitetails. Mm-hmm. The higher the value of the timber, the lower the wildlife value, unless you're looking at squirrels, um, you know, woodpeckers, whatever. <laughs> uh, but but you're, the lower the wildlife value, the higher the timber value. Yeah, yeah. And so that's so timber value gets people into trouble, too, because now they're socked into managing. I mean, who wants to cut down uh, middle-aged um potentially high dollar hard maple oh yeah or cherry or white oak that's going to be um even uh oh boy uh, walnuts even worse walnut mm-hmm. 
you know, attracts nothing other than squirrels, but it takes, you know, decades to mature enough to harvest and have it, have it be a preachable. A yeah. visual. So until then, it's a dead space. And so those are some of the, you know, uh, too high a timber value, water in the wrong locations. Access, of course, is really, really bad. Um, you know, if your access, it might be great that you have this really nice middle central trail that goes right through the property. But if, if you're going to have a hard time accessing that property because of water constraints around the outside edges, then, um, you know, access, of course, is really important as far as it relates to where you can put food plots, potentially habitat improvements. And, uh, and so access, water, and timber value would probably be right up there with the three, you know, really tough ones. Yeah, yeah, sure. What do you think is uh, is, is fool's gold whenever people – uh, start looking at small properties, you know, like what can people really think and get fooled by when they drive up and see a place like, Oh, look at all these tracks or, or just something oh, like that. That's a, that's a great point. So right now is a really deceiving time. And I just, I'll have a video coming out soon. Um, actually tomorrow I'm going to put it out. Awesome. But it talks about, uh, Oh no, I put it out yesterday, yesterday actually. <laughs> so I, I'm getting mixed up here in my own, but anyways, I put it out and it talks about the four, the four uh, periods to scout whitetails all year long. And right now is so deceiving because if you're looking at property, a lot of people are excited in the spring. They're starting to look at property. Uh-huh. Deer sign can be very, very misleading right now because it was winter sign. So you have properties that collect a lot of deer during the winter, but are almost vacant during the fall. Uh-huh. And so if you're looking at areas of uh, high grass, maybe you had a standing crop field next door, a conifer thicket, um, it can look like there's deer tracks, there's pellets on top of pellets, and, and really it's misleading because those deer aren't there during the fall. And so those fall rubs and scrapes are so important. Um, looking at rubs and shavings are those shavings under the leaves on top of the leaves. I like in meaning that if they're under the leaves, they were early season on mm-hmm. top of the leaves, mid, mid-season or later. Um, I really like looking at uh, trails right now because these trails that are evident right now before spring green up and might even be green up in your area, but they're so evident. So if you're trying to connect potential bedding areas in the future or lines of movement between food and bedding, water holes and bedding or water holes and food, then the trails that those deer travel on right now are so evident. And so if you're planning on a property, this is a really cool time because you never want to try to reinvent the wheel. Again, you know, you can do that move a bedding area from one side of the land to the other, but in a case like this, you're using these trails that are so evident the deer have told you now where they want to travel if they're moving through that area. Uh So you say, I'm going to put a bedding area here and here, and then you use the trails that are so incredibly evident right now, flag them off in between, make sure you put your stands up accordingly, and you can pinpoint exactly how to move deer across your property. So if you're looking at property right now, and you're seeing a lot of tracks, try to take a good, hard, critical look at it. Was this from just over the last month, the last three months, or was this representative of hunting season, or is this a summer parcel? So you're, you're walking out on the land during the summer, and there's mature bucks everywhere. Mature bucks during the summer are typically not at all where they're going to be located in the fall because they need a completely set of different habitat uh, conditions. They can't go through thick cover that they require in the fall. The summer food sources are gone in the form of alfalfa and beans. And so you're walking on a property in the summer and you see big bucks everywhere. Well, is that actually a fall parcel? Because if it's a summer parcel, you have a lot of work to do on that new land to make it into a fall parcel. Yeah, yeah. Man, those are great points. I, I never really thought about 
about the idea of, you know, not not taking the sign for what it is. You know, we, we go out and we scout places to, you know, public land or what oh, have yeah. you. You know, and you're like, yeah. oh, you know, and you kind of get that. But whenever you apply that to to purchasing a place, it's different. You know, even if you went out and found a, a giant shed, you know, that would just be like, oh, oh my, my gosh, gosh, this is the sign. Yeah. This is the place. But really, <laughs> you know, that deer might actually, you know, fall uh, three miles from there. You know, so. Oh, man. And, and well, think about that, too. Like, so I've been to, like, a northern Michigan parcel. And they literally purchased it at the end of winter, and it's a deer yard. Mm-hmm. And in that deer yard, in those cedars, deer came from 10 miles away or 15 miles away. And, I mean, literally, there are pellets on top of pellets, deer um, deer beds everywhere if there's still a little bit of snow. There's rubs because there was that second and third rub that they're rubbing in either early December or mid-December and then early to mid-January. So, you know, you have does coming from everywhere that maybe had low buck populations. You're putting them all in one spot. Now you're going to have a December and January rut. So you're seeing sign in that area. Now it's great. You might have a great hunt in December, but but I've hunted those areas on public land a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, late 80s, 90s. And you could have an area we would hunt between Christmas and New Year's. And because of those, it was a warm winter. None of the deer moving into that area, so it was dead. There was yeah. literally no deer. Yeah. And then another year, we were throwing out bait. At that time, we're 17 years old, 18. We're throwing out 100 pounds of carrots or apples, whatever it was. It was legal back in the 80s. And all of a sudden, we have 25 deer there the next day when we go out and sit in the afternoon. And, and then one, <laughs> one year later, there's none. And then the next year... So if you have a property, you know, you really have to be concerned about, you know, really going back to when was this rub made? When was this sign made? Is this representative of a fall parcel, a summer parcel or a winter parcel? And I find most deer at this time of the year going back to their summer parcels. They probably were in March, too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Jeff, you've made a lot of references to your YouTube videos, and I can tell you that a couple of the ones you mentioned I have already watched. I, I tune in pretty oh, often yeah. because it's so <laughs> helpful for, for you know, kind of what I have going personally on small properties and then just general broad concepts of whitetail too. So can you tell people maybe where to uh, to find out more about what you have going on both with your business and then your YouTube channel? Oh, sure. Um, I have both of them are whitetailhabitatsolutions.com or on YouTube if you just look up Whitetail Habitat Solutions. Um, I also have an Instagram account that's Whitetail Habitat Solutions and same with my Facebook account. And I do go through in streaks, which is a small business. Uh, Diane, my wife, helps me out a lot. Um, I have Dylan, my editor, uh, Taryn, and someone else that helps me out. So I have people that do help me out, but boy, it's it's uh, there's a lot of facets of it. I we, my goal is to put out 200 YouTube videos this year. We put out 125 wow. last year, and, and we're on pace for that, too. Uh, again, we shot seven yesterday. Um, we'll, we'll you know, add to that. Those seven will come out over the next two weeks. Or I'm really trying to put out an average of uh, right around four videos a week, and uh, certain times we're doing that at a higher rate. Um, but I try to hit um, – it's not about just wait till Habitat. It's about what's going on in the whitetail woods at that time of the year. So mm-hmm. I have a video coming out tomorrow that goes over a 12-month um, checklist of what you should be doing in the woods over those 12 months as it relates to oh. either deer hunting or deer habitat. And I I probably should, could have been more inclusive on that, but basically it's following out the content that I put out online. Yeah, sure. So whether it's articles or videos, I'm trying to say, okay, what is what am I doing right now? And if I'm probably doing it, it's important – I'm probably getting questions about it. My clients are asking right now. I'm always keeping notes. 
um, on my phone for my clients. Um, I think I have about, I have at least 250 bullet points of potential blogs and articles, and videos on my phone right now. <laughs> wow. and so, it, so depending on the time of the year, I'm always going back into that and, and trying to keep current with what's going on in the whitetail world. Unfortunately, I'm, I will turkey hunt, but I'm not a big, I, I'm pretty boring. I do fish during the summer, but it's, it's all about whitetails for me. That's my career, my profession, passion, and my family's involved in it. And um, we try to reflect that in all the social media posts and content that's out there. And that's certainly the videos. And I try, I really try to answer everybody on the comments on YouTube, but I literally like this morning, I get up, it's usually, uh, I would say an hour to two hours a day, depending on the video and what's going on for YouTube comments, 365 days out of the year. Wow. <laughs> and so when I, when I get behind, I've had like three hours at a time. And then there's sometimes I just say, you know what, I just have to forget the last two days and <laughs> keep going. So I really try to answer everybody. And I've even had people to get slighted, you know, I'll come, you answer everyone else around me and didn't answer mine. But I, I honestly try, I, I play no favorites. I just answer what, uh, obviously if it's an easy question, I don't have much time. I answer that one over a more detailed one, but, um, I really try to interact with everybody. Too. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, if they if they want some of that really detailed stuff, they can just call you up and pay you to come to their property, right? Like that's the way. Well, it's that's it. That's, <laughs> that's the thing. It's and that's what's tough. It's I, I really do want to answer all those questions. Um, I get uh, just almost every day. Sometimes during hunting season, several a day, where people want me to help them out with their land. And because I go to about ninety clients a year, and we turn away about one hundred and fifty, it's just really hard to. I, you know, I, and then, you know, 200 articles, I'll, I'll finish one to three more books this year and write about 75 articles, oh. of course, spend time with family and friends. So there's, it runs out, you know, it is a seven day business, yeah. seven day business, but, you know, at the same time, it gets into a point where, um, uh, some of those questions that are too detailed about someone's specific property, then unfortunately either they, I mean, I have, I'll have almost a thousand videos and articles online that hopefully can help them mm -hmm. uh, my books are 24.95 at best you know worst or whatever and um and then so i have a lot of free content that i hope can help people and i wish i had more time that's for sure yeah sure well you know you didn't mention sleep and any of those things that you said you needed to get done so i can only imagine that you just don't <laughs> sleep very much because you got a no, whole lot going kinda, i can say i sleep more than my or i sleep less than my wife diane but i usually <laughs> it's one of those where first thing in the morning it's a cup of coffee and answering or, or publishing uh youtube content yeah, yeah so sure. that's usually how i start my day maybe a instagram post and and then we go from there for shooting videos or you know right now like i said i'm on a um i'm getting towards madison right now in southwest wisconsin i'm on my way to michigan and that's seven clients in eight days. And, and so a lot of my client days are typically 10 to 11 hours with my clients. And then I average about uh, three hours of driving on top of that. So that's for, you know, eight out of nine days, seven out of eight days. So there's not much else time for, for that. And so usually I'm waking up early to post a YouTube video or an article Yeah. during my trips too. <laughs> well, so. Jeff, I can tell you from firsthand experience, uh, your labors are well appreciated, man. That's a great YouTube channel you've got going, and a great thing you've got going. The Whitetail Habitat Solutions. I, I've learned a lot, thank and you, specifically, I can remember the first one I watched was about uh, building visual barriers. That's a great one with uh, with uh, yeah screening you know. and yeah access and yeah yeah that's awesome it's awesome stuff you got going man so as well, as i let you much, go Casey. oh you're welcome man you are very welcome thank you and as i let you go i want you to leave the the listener maybe with a little bit of encouragement you know it can it can seem almost a little bit overwhelming when you start thinking about well 
how can I, you know, uh, kind of positively affect the limiting factors on this property? And then you go to your property and you're like, well, it has all the limiting factors, right? It's small and it doesn't have anything I need it to, right? Can you just kind of give us a little bit of encouragement of why, why we should get out there and get after it and, and improve that small property? And that's, that's a great comment because I, what I tell people all the time is for one, your property can change overnight. This is something that does not take years, even an open field up North here, you can use switchgrass and diversity pockets in one year. That switchgrass is approximately 40 inches to four feet high. You can provide cover for deer food. It can all happen in one summer. Um, even just the last 10 videos, 15 videos I've taught that I put out has a lot to do with habitat management working on doe factories, eliminating does or raising doe numbers, raising a deer fact or raising a deer population. Um, that can all happen very quickly. And just because you have a small property, you know, my properties, I have eight acres of cover, 30 acres of cover, 40 acres of cover. The new property is 25. And so any of the bucks you see that I shoot, um, any of the uh, habitat improvements that I make, they're all based on those smaller parcels. Now, what's cool is I put that you compare that to 160 acre parcel where a lot of people fail with that larger parcel is they need to do the amount of work that it takes on 40 acres times four. (laughs) And so I find that the amount of work that it takes on 40 acres is enough for the, for the, you know, the food plotter or habitat manager to handle. And so when you actually make a complete small property and it takes obviously a lot less work than a 200 acre parcel, then you can, you make those connections, you make those features you can turn things around overnight for one, if you're experiencing a lot of nocturnal problems, I have a nocturnal playlist where I talk about how to reverse your property um, um, trajectory, but man, there's so much you can do right now and it can happen quickly on your land. And what I, someone always says, like when I come out to their land, they ask me, are client objectives and goals often higher than I would expect for them. And actually it's the other way around. Really? Most people with small parcels do not realize the potential of their land because they've never experienced it. That's what I hope to offer them. But I'm here to tell you right now that that can be done quickly and the potential on average is a lot greater than you think. Wow. That's cool. All right. I'm pumped. I'm ready. <laughs> this <laughs> be- Again, again, even just look at mature bucks. You're only managing the daylight movement. Who cares if they move three miles as a home range? 95% of that or more is during the daylight. And when you have small parcels packed into small parcels, mature bucks only focus on a small percentage of every land out there to attract their daylight attention every single day. And it's 150, 200 yard movement, 300 yards in, in a little bit bigger area, 400 yards. But when you get into those small micro parcels in neighborhoods, and you're talking 150 yards or less, and that's the beauty of the whitetail world and management and hunting. It doesn't take a lot of property. And I, I really firmly believe that the potential is a lot higher than a lot of people realize that are listening. Yeah, that's great news, man. That is cool. So, I, well, I can't yeah. wait to get out there and manage my small property. And I'm sure I'll be uh, referencing plenty of your YouTube videos while doing yeah. so. So we'll be sure and uh, <laughs> we'll be sure and link yeah. to uh, your website and your YouTube page and your social media down here in the show notes below. And uh, okay, Jeff, cool. I can't thank you enough, man. It's always great to talk to you. And uh, I probably had about 30 other questions I could ask you. So we'll have to do it again sometime. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll be traveling to clients some other time and we can, we can hit, you know, get on the phone. That'd be awesome. <laughs> so I'd always love talking to you guys. Appreciate it, Jeff. Uh, don't work too hard today, yeah. man. And good luck in turkey season. Yeah. Thank you. You too. All right. Thanks. We'll see you. 
Well, unfortunately, I was not able to make the end of that podcast. I had some prior work lined out, and Jeff uh, moved the interview up to uh, because he had an opportunity to, and so we were just all trying to accommodate each other. Luckily, KC was able to kind of finish that thing out. And it's for, okay. For, we just talked about how smelly you were <laughs> that's after you good. got off. That's good, yeah. <laughs> he was like, I could smell through the phone. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, I uh, I wish I could have heard that, and I'm looking forward to listening to the full edit of this podcast. But uh, what I did here, man, it's just, you know, good old Jeff, man. Yeah, just everything, knows everything. Everything Jeff had to say was good. I can't vouch so much for myself, but <laughs> yeah. he's, he's, uh, he's the man, dude. Yeah. Like, And I already, you know, truth be told, I've already purchased a small property, right? So I don't need encouragement to do that. I'm already feeling pretty good about it. There's there's deer all over the place, even though it's small. But Jeff's words and his knowledge, like, give me a, a fuller understanding of what I truly can make my place into. Mm-hmm. You know, it, and it's uh, it doesn't matter if it's small, really. Honestly, yeah. it's it's even an advantage if you play your cards right. right. So I'm pretty pumped about the years to come, man. <laughs> it's exciting, man. Yeah, and it pumps me up to talk to him because, you know, <clears throat> hopefully, my my goal is to. Is to find the right property that's a good, solid, small property that I can afford, and and uh, you know, unfortunately, that's a pretty small one. And and a lot of people that have those have already kind of done the same thing that I'm wanting to do. But mm-hmm. um, you know, just going to keep searching and hopefully, eventually, save up some money and be able to do something like that. And it's inspiring to think that you might be able to harvest mature bucks on a small property even in in uh areas like where we live where it's pretty populated you know and lots of hunters we got that's one thing you know they talk about some of that stuff in the northeast and the population and everything but um we have like like per capita the number of hunters is pretty outrageous in texas oh yeah i think so too and i think that um something we run into a lot that isn't uh accounted for is the amount of people who who say, "Well, my cousin hunts there once a year, so probably not," you yep. know, like I think that we even ran into this in, in like the Midwest and stuff. Whenever we're getting permission places, like, yeah, nobody's hunting there right now. Y'all can go in there. You know, it doesn't really matter if somebody hunts it in you know in the first weekend of December or whatever. You know, you can <laughs> yeah. go ahead and go in there right now. And it and I, it's private property. Like, I understand. You know, it's your right to tell me not to go in there. But I think that that's just another hurdle that you have to jump whenever you live in a place where everybody hunts yeah yeah for sure so but always good to hear from jeff um we'll link to his uh anything that has to do with him that we can think of yeah. in, the, in the description i'll probably throw some specific youtube videos down there as well like some of the ones that i've watched in the past couple months that's really helped me he actually has one that's titled uh very similar to the topic of this whole podcast like the 40 acres or less and i think he just released a new one that's like um 12 month deer management uh-huh. system which is kind of cool like kind of that whole idea of like what you can be doing all the time to kind of help yourself be a better hunter right yeah. right well i mean we're in a kind of a time period where there's just not a whole lot going on until yeah. you know like yeah sure i mean there's still some shed hopper shed, shed hunting opportunities uh especially shop opportunities shop opportunities <laughs> that's right up north you know <laughs> like we're but here man i mean i'm looking out outside the window right now and everything is just popping green the grass is getting pretty tall already and we had rain and we're having sunshine the rest you know for a few days here it's going to be it's going to be pretty much uh, hard to find a shed green up from this, this point on for sure. so i'm thinking more about fishing until there is a little bit more antler on the head mm. but can't wait. Uh, i can't wait either i can't i just 
that's the good thing about being all around outdoorsmen. I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast are pretty strict and pretty serious about whitetails, but man, it's there's some fun stuff to be had out there in the off season and whitetail and and uh, fishing is one thing. And I talked to my dad about that the other day. He goes, and I don't, I don't know. I may have talked to you about this recently, but um, I don't remember who it was. But he was saying, man. You know, I just think if I had to give up one or the other, hunting or fishing, it would be hunting. I'd give up hunting and I'd do fishing. And I said, man, I think I'm in the same boat. I love deer hunting probably more than any sport, but I love fishing more than, you know, that's a year-round thing you could yeah. do if you wanted to, and I just love it, you know, just as much. And I'm glad that's not a real-world scenario that I don't <laughs> no ever kidding. have to face, you know. No kidding, That man. would be rough. I do love I do love it all, man. Yeah. So. But it's a it's a beautiful time of year, man. To to uh, I don't know. It's it's, it's like uh, I I kind of equate like right now to like you know late October. Mm-hmm. You know what it's I mean? Same it's, kind of thing. A lot of changes kind of happening. Yep. You know? Yep. I think I see teal on the horizon right over there, over the tops of those trees. Yeah, you probably Which, do. That's... Speaking of changes, you know, that's that time of year. Those blue wings. You, you and I were talking about this because I didn't really know for sure the other day, but you said doc. You know, mid-April's like the time, right? Yeah, when they April, come back through. April's the time when we start seeing a lot of blue wings, and they are fully plumed out by this point. And yeah. They're about to hit the downhill, but they're tasty too. Still, I imagine. <laughs> I don't know that for sure, but the ones that you shoot in December are still tasty in March mm-hmm. and April. So, anyway, I think it's about time to get off of here. Uh, we are working on lots of guests right now that we're lining up, and we got some pretty exciting stuff coming up, even though it's the off season. Some good things to learn about in the off season that can help you when you start getting a little closer and you start getting a little more hype and you start listening to those podcasts about tactics and that kind of thing as far as deer hunting goes. You'll already have these other things in your back pocket. So uh, look forward to that. I look forward to talking to you guys. And God bless you guys. And remember, this is your element. Living it. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.